Hey, it's Kathy. I'm so excited because, drumroll please, doors are officially open to my program, The Abundance Method. I have been wanting to put this program out in the world for two and a half years. I've been working on it behind the scenes, and this is my signature program. This is the program that is going to teach you the method, the framework for how to become a master manifester in your life. Why is that? Because everything is vibration. We live in a world that is atomic. That means the world is made of atoms, which is energy. 99.9% of every atom is energy and less than 1% particle. So in order for us to manifest in our life, we need to become the highest vibe possible and to sustain that. This program is going to show you how to meditate and how to set your day on the right track so that you have a practice that can help you project your amazing energy into the world, which will bend the 3D, which will help you manifest in ways that you won't even believe. This is a transformative live 10-week program. It is designed to help you on this journey of spiritual awakening. It's going to give you tons of tools. I'm going to show you how to change your energy, master the manifestation once and for all, This is the first program of its kind. We're actually trademarking all of this framework because it is something that is so unique. And I think you're going to be so excited about learning it. Also, there are some bonuses right now. If you sign up, you're going to get an exclusive podcast so that you can be listening to this program. If you can't make the live Zoom calls, we can give it to you on a track so that you can be listening to it like you do a podcast. Also, you're going to get a pack of 10 meditations from me. And you're going to be getting a training that I just gave a workshop called Permission to be Rich, one of the best workshops I've ever done, which you will love. And there is a platinum level to this program. If you choose the platinum level, not only do you get extra coaching calls with me, you also get extra mentor support, but this is really cool. You also get a retreat included. My retreats are normally $3,000. You will get the retreat for free included. Plus, you will get a front row seat at that retreat because you will be on the platinum VIP track at the retreat. All of this is here for you. I'd love to see you in this program. I want to see you tapping in, turning on to that electricity within you so that you can find your way to the life that you were born to manifest for yourself. You can join us now at kathyheller.com slash join. I cannot wait. Get on in there. See what all the excitement is about. It's going to be so much fun. Hey guys, it's Kathy Heller. Welcome back to the last episode of 2021. This is also the last time I'm going to say welcome back to the last episode of Don't Keep Your Day Job because as of January, next week, we are changing the name of this podcast to simply The Kathy Heller Show. And I'm so excited. It's just sort of like opening up more expansion so we can just continue to have this epic conversation. But but just allow it to be fully feeling like it's me in my greatest and best self so that I can serve you in the greatest and best possible ways. So I'll still be here every Monday and Thursday, and I'm just so excited to bring you more of the best that I can possibly deliver. So as we're approaching this new year, I want to help you get started in calling in more abundance into your life. I know that that's a word I've been saying to people, what's your word for next year? And people have been saying expansion and abundance a lot. So I have a free guide that's going to help you with money beliefs and you can start to change your relationship with money 
and you can change the amount of worthiness and amount that you just let in because you deserve it. If you want to grab this free guide, you can just go to kathyheller.com slash receive. So on Monday, we did part one of the best of 2021 roundup. And as promised, here we have today part two. You're going to hear more of the awesome guests that we've had this year. Harry Connick Jr., Brandy Carlisle, Maya Bialik, Gay Hendricks, Damon John, Rabbi David Aaron, and a few others. This is such a great way to end the year celebrating these special, incredible moments that we want to now replay for all of you. So our first clip is from my conversation with Emmy and Grammy Award winning singer, composer, and actor, Harry Connick Jr. This was one of those, I've never shared this story before moments, which made the episode so great. And these stories really sum up who Harry is as a person. It's just way beyond being a celebrity. So take a listen. And so we had this Sunday breakfast one day and it was my mom, my dad, me and my sister and this guy. And this guy came over and he had a suit on and, you know, I'm like, Tan, I, I really don't want to be there. And we're having breakfast and yet, yes, sir, you know, sir. And, you know, I come from the generation where it was, you know, don't speak unless you're spoken to. So we would say there and we'd be quiet. And this guy would say, so, you know, Harry Jr., what did you do? Oh, I did this. Yes, sir. You know, and I figured he was a celebrity or politician or something. Well, a couple of weeks later, my mom I'm with her getting her oil changed and there's this guy in his mechanics outfit covered in oil or whatever. I'm like, that's that dude who was at our house. She's like, yeah, you know, that's Mr. Smith. It's like, well, what was he doing there? She's like, well, he's a nice man. And you know, we, we appreciate him. And it clicked in my mind. Like, Oh wait, you don't have to be like a big celebrity to like come dress up and come have, you know, and it, and it, it sounds very basic, but when you see that example, I don't care who you're talking to, young, old, black, white, gay, straight, whatever religion, I try to love all of them, not tolerate them or accept them, love them. And, and I find I'm, I'm at so much more peace for me. You know, when I go to bed at night, I pray for the people that have given me problems almost before I pray for the people that I love. Just love people. You know, it's so, so much easier. It's so good. It's so good. It's so beautiful. It reminds me of a a quick story, which I didn't think I would tell you, but it's just so beautiful. So my rabbi's wife was in New York City getting ready. It's Rosh Hashanah. It's like the biggest day of the year. She's like planning all this stuff and she's late for shul. Listen to God, because everyone's already gone. She's getting the house ready and she walks outside and this homeless man walks up to her on Rosh Hashanah, which is like the biggest holy day. And he says, can I come to your house for a meal for thy holidays? And he's clearly a homeless person. And she thinks for like one second. And then she says to him, yes, yeah, I'll be back, you know, and he starts to walk away and they're living in the city. So she starts running after him. She says, you don't know my apartment. You don't know my address. And he says, I just wanted to know what your answer would be. Wow. Wow. I've that story has never left me and I've never told that to anybody, but can I tell you one that I've never told to anybody? Oh my God. Yes. <laughs> All right. So I have to tell the story to give you the ending, but I would rather leave out the part that shines light on me, but, but I have to tell that part. So I was doing a movie in New Orleans and every day I would drive past this particular area under the Claiborne bridge where there were 50 homeless people every day, sleeping in tents, whatever. 
So I decided to go to McDonald's and, you know, buy a hundred egg McMuffins or whatever, whatever it was. So I put all the stuff in the car and I brought it to him. And I noticed when I was handing it out that they, they weren't like particularly effusive, right? They just kind of took it. And I just thought that I didn't care, but I just thought that was interesting. Well, I was in New Orleans. My dad was there and I really wanted my dad to know that I did this. So he'd be proud of me, which is not the reason I did it. And I shouldn't have thought about it, but I'm telling you this to be as frank with you as I can. So I was looking for the right opportunity to tell my dad, you know, like, so I didn't want to make it sound like dad, I gave all this food to these homeless people. I was telling the story from the perspective of how they responded to it. Cause I figured that would be more casual. So I said, dad, I gave this food to these homeless people and they weren't like really thankful. They just kind of took it. And I was expecting, oh, that's interesting. You'd think they would be thankful. You know what he said? They treated me the same way when I brought him food. He had never told me that story. And it would hit me like a brick wall. Like I learned so many lessons that day. A, you don't need your right hand to know what the left hand is doing all the time. Why are you doing this? Are you doing this for you? Are you doing this for praise for you? Or are you doing it for those people? Are you really doing it for those people? And the fact that my dad didn't tell me that, the fact that he did it and didn't tell me that, like, a, a, and I'm like, what else has he done? You know, and it, it was, it was a great lesson in, in humility and love. And, um, you know, that's just like what I can sense you try to do. That's what I try to do. I just try to be better, man. Try to be better in the title track on this album, along with my faith. There's the bridge and you know what a bridge is in music, right? So in the bridge, it says, I just got to work a little harder right now. I just got to dig a little deeper right now. I just got to look a little closer at myself, take my time, keep my faith. Wasn't that so sweet? Uh, We also had Brandi Carlisle on the show this year, who is a Grammy winning singer songwriter and a New York Times bestselling author. And I love what she shared about the power of telling her story. Let's talk about this stunning, gorgeous, generous book that you wrote that has helped people through dark times and good times, um, Broken Horses. It came out a few months ago. So what did you want people to walk away with reading this book? Well, different kinds of people. I wanted to walk away with different things. And some of these things I didn't realize until after I was hearing the feedback for the book. Some of them have been about, I'm not going to get too buzzwordy, but about like representation, like where people that are having kids or getting married or struggled when they couldn't get married or had a hard time with adoption have felt like really seen by the story and the concept of like our parenting journey and the way that it changed the way we related to each other. It changed. And I wanted to know if there were other queer people like me experiencing deep and resounding faith rejection, but wanting their faith, which was really, that was a coming out of the closet moment for me where it was like, I was feeling like I wanted to be honest about being a Jesus girl and wondering if that would make gay people not accept me in the same way that I wondered if saying I was gay would make Jesus people not accept me when I was a kid. So I wanted to know if I was the only one with that. Definitely not the only one with that. And then there are people that are interested in what I do for a job that have music inside of them, want to follow their dreams. And so I thought maybe it'd be fun to put a step-by-step to my own trajectory and all the hilarious and, and complicated things that got me to here. 
And I didn't know if I had an interesting story until after I wrote it. And then I realized, yeah, it's really interesting. And a lot of people's lives are really interesting. And I strongly, strongly recommend that even if you don't know what you want, anybody that's listening to this, write your life, write it. Even if it's just for you, you will not believe how interesting you are and how healing and informative it can be to the rest of your life. If you just pause and take a look at it chronologically, mine your soul like that. It's unbelievable the growth that I've experienced, you know, in my soul from writing that book. Ah, I love Brandy so much. So next we have one of the most unforgettable stories ever told on this podcast. This is from my conversation with Tim Grover, who was Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant's performance coach. I can't even imagine what that was like to work with such legends. And here's his inspiring story on how he first started working with Michael Jordan. I saw a little article in the paper said, hey, how Michael Jordan was tired of taking a physical abuse for the Detroit Pistons. So I said, okay, let me see. Let me think about this. I was like, I'm going to send 14 letters to every single player on the Bulls organization except Michael Jordan. I said, he's already so good, but if he sees the work I do with somebody else, he may take notice and I can get with him later on. And back then, remember, no emails, no text messages, no nothing. So you had to, I literally hand wrote the letters, went out, got stamps, I put them in the mailbox. All right. I said, we'll see what happens. Obviously, one of the letters got to one of the players. Michael actually pulled it out of uh, somebody else's locker and said, hey, find out what this kid's about. And the team physician and the athletic uh, trainer at the time, they contacted me and literally put me through three months of more vigorous questions and training than I had in my six years of college to make sure I knew what I was doing. But they didn't tell me who the client was. They did not tell me who it was. So after three months, they gave me an address. and like, here's the address. The person wants to meet you at 1.30. So I go to the house. You know, before then, this was before the big gated house and all. I just rang the doorbell. Nobody answered. Rang it twice. Nobody answered. Rang it third time. Finally, Michael Jordan ends up opening up the door. No way. Yeah. So that was my moment. That was my moment. When, and I'm not a starstruck person. But everything I had prepared for up to that time everything I'd seen my parents do, everything I, I, I sacrificed, taking the low-end jobs, preparing myself, knowing more about my craft than the next person allowed me to sit down in front of this individual, explain to him what my philosophies were, what were my thoughts were, and it was totally different than what everybody else had brought up to him. And he said, hey, listen, let's try it out for 30 days. 30 days turned into 15 years. He was actually my first professional client. All right. And the caveat to this story that nobody that I I really don't share with too many people is for the first three years, he never paid me. Not because he didn't want to. I never asked him for it. I never asked him for it. And then he finally, one day we finished the workout. He went upstairs and he came back down and he goes, I've never paid you. I said, yeah. <laughs> and he goes, well, how much do you want? I said, Michael, that's not for me to say. I said, you tell me what my value is to you. He wrote a check, put an envelope. To this day, I don't know how much that check was. I took that envelope and handed it to my parents. I said, thank you. I think the check was pretty significant because 
My dad got a new car. My mom redid the whole house. But this was a way of me saying to them, thank you for believing in me. I just was bowled over by Tim's vulnerability. So now I want to play another amazing story from award-winning actress and neuroscientist Maya Bialik. It was so fascinating to hear what she was doing before she got the role on The Big Bang Theory because you wouldn't have guessed that this was the kind of life that she had. Take a listen. Tell us about being on The Big Bang Theory because people don't like the show. They love the show. Like It's like it's a part of their physical body it that's how they speak of it and you and that character yeah Um, so what was that whole experience like for you um well when I auditioned for the Big Bang Theory I had just started acting again I had a nursing you know he was about one but I had a he was exclusively breastfed so literally when I left him to go audition for things it was like good luck Mike (laughs) um Yeah, I had a toddler and I had a nursing infant, you know, when I auditioned for The Big Bang Theory. I had never seen it. I thought it was a game show because I heard that I was mentioned in season one. And I was like, oh, because it must be like a game show of like, what star used to be, you know, a neuroscientist. (laughs) Anyway, never mind. I'm (laughs) crazy. So I, I did not get the job because I'm a scientist. The character actually didn't even have a profession in the season finale of season three, which is when I I I came on the show as a guest star, possible recurring. And they said they wanted a female Jim Parsons. I had no idea who Jim Parsons was. The show was already very successful by then. I think he had just won like his second Golden Globe Award. So I Googled Jim Parsons playing Sheldon. I was like, oh, I know people like that. I think I'm like that. So I just like imitated him and I got the job. And I didn't even know that it would turn into being a regular. I was a mom. I was teaching neuroscience for five years. I designed a curriculum for junior high and high school students in our homeschool community. I was tutoring piano. Like I did a lot of things to make ends meet. You know, I didn't have money from Blossom. Like that's not, that wasn't a thing. People didn't make the money you think, especially teenage girls. And so, yeah, I was like, I was like, budgeting. I was doing all the things that people do. And I was driving to Pacific Palisades when I was in grad school to like make 20 bucks an hour tutoring a kid Hebrew. Like I was, Oh a my God. That's I was, a, just like even... a, I was just like a normal person. I mean, I was a normal person of privilege, you know, struggling in Los Angeles to pay rent and, and do all those things and have health insurance. And I was running out of health insurance is why I wanted to start auditioning for things again, because I just needed to try and work a couple, even guest spots so that I could just try and get my insurance back. Wow. So I got the Big Bang Theory. They made me a regular in season four. And Fred was about 18 months then. You know, I lived as a, a working mom then in a situation where I was not planning on being the working mom. Like that wasn't what life was going to look like. But very grateful to my my now ex-husband, you know, for whether we were married or divorced, he was an at-home parent for our boys Um, Our kids have always been homeschooled. So he is both their teacher and their driver and their everything. And um, that's how our family works. We don't use nannies, never have. So during all those years of Big Bang Theory, you know, I was going through that. I went through a divorce. My father died, which is very, very significant um, in my life. That was six years ago. So yeah, that was Big Bang Theory. And like nine years later, I woke up and it was over and here we are. One of my other favorite actresses, Cheryl Hines, was on the podcast this year. And as a huge Curb Your Enthusiasm fan, I could not help but ask what it was like to audition for that show and meet Larry David for the first time. Then I got an audition for Curb Your Enthusiasm. And it was all improvised. I really didn't know who Larry David was. I knew that he had created Seinfeld with 
with Jerry Seinfeld, but I didn't know anything about him, you know? And um, they said, listen, when you go into the room, don't touch Larry. He doesn't like for people to touch him. <laughs> I was like, okay. And they said, <laughs> and it needs to feel real because the tone of the show, it needs to feel real. And if it doesn't, the audition will be over. And I was like, okay. And then I went in and uh, met Larry and I just sparked with him. You know, it was interesting because I was expecting like a troll in the corner with long nails and a cloak. And he was, he seemed much more normal than I was expecting. But we just started improvising and uh, they wanted an unknown talent which worked out great for me because nobody knew me. (laughs) And then they hired me. Oh, Cheryl, I just love her. Here's another amazing story. This is from my conversation with Damon John, who you might know from Shark Tank. I love how he painted the picture of the day that basically launched his entire entrepreneurial journey and changed his life. It it happened by mistake. I saw a hat that I really loved, but it looked looked like a ski cap. And instead of the ball on the top, it was open on the top. So you you took a piece of the fabric with a hat and you tied like a string. I saw it in a De La Soul video and I wanted to buy it. Um, and I bought it. And I remember showing my mother the hat and she said, that's a poorly constructed hat. And, and I can't believe you paid $20 for that hat. She said, you, you don't have enough money to just keep buying hats like that. I showed you the basics of sewing. I'll show you how to sew that hat. So I go to the store, I get $40 worth of fabric so I can make a couple of hats. And uh, I come home and my mother shows me how to sew the hats. But I didn't realize that I, was, I wasn't thinking about it. I bought the same roll of fabric. So now I had 80 hats that looked like the same exact striped candy cane and one head. And I realized I'm never going to wear all these hats. I don't want to give them away to all my friends because then all my friends will look exactly like me. So it was 1989. It was um, Good Friday. It was about 3.15 in the afternoon. It was around 47 degrees outside. And I stood outside on the corner and I tried to sell those hats. In one hour, I sold $800 worth of hats. And I remember saying to myself, I made these hats in my own hands. It was my ability to show value to the customer, whether it is this matches the outfit. This is the hip hat you saw in De La Soul video. Uh, this is going to make your head feel warm. You're going to look like you're onto the new things like in hip hop. And it was my ability to relay this message to them. And now I have $800. And I will never have to work for anybody ever again for the rest of my life. Now, reality set in, I worked at Red Lobster for five years after that. But that moment was the moment of like, and I think everybody can experience this or feel that. It's a culmination of a bunch of actions and thoughts. And then when that goal starts to unfold in front of you, it's like, God damn it. That is it. It doesn't mean that's going to be it forever, but it was that moment that changed my life. Isn't that amazing? I also had the honor of talking to one of my favorite authors for a second time, Gay Hendricks. He's the best-selling author of The Big Leap and The Genius Zone. And I love what he said here about seeing possibility and making a commitment to receive. We just went to, on the way home from our Tennessee trip, we stopped in Orlando and we took the kids to Epcot Center And Figment says, we see far more with our minds than with our eyes. And the more that I've learned and the more that I've studied, it's just amazing how when we pray or meditate, we often close our eyes, right? And we see greater with our eyes closed sometimes. 
And I think that all of the work that you do and the way that you speak, it's kind of, it kind of drops us into really the generous, you know, the present moment, which is just pregnant with possibility. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, uh, Disney World itself, I grew up within a stone's throw of Disney World. Did you know that? No. Uh, Yeah. And uh, I remember looking at my mother when they bought that. It was probably around 1970 or something like that when they bought that piece of land. And my mother and I looked at each other and said, really, they sold that piece of land? <laughs> you know, it was 30,000 acres of swamp when I was growing up. And uh, the fact that Disney, you know, flew around it in a helicopter and said, hey, I can do something here. You know, that's a great example of, of that. Some of us know, um, he's now deceased now, but Art Linkletter, he tells a story of riding around in a car with Walt Disney before Disneyland in California with, and given an opportunity to invest in it. Yeah, I don't think so. I don't think you can make a go of that sort of a thing, Walt, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and so uh, he loved to st- tell that story on himself. But, you know, let's just say the subject of receiving is vast and limitless and I believe is a holy task that we get from the moment we get here on this planet to balance out our ability to receive and our ability to give. And this, I believe, is an era of receiving where most of the people who listen to this podcast and watch you will be in the pretty proficient in the art of giving. But let's get everybody as proficient in the art of receiving so that you can have your full measure of love, abundance, and creativity. That's really what the genius zone is all about, is how to live there and how to kind of steer yourself, navigate along like a bird flies so that you get to ride the wind currents and stay there. Because it's one thing to kind of break through into your genius zone. It's another thing to actually suspend yourself there and move along in that genius flow all the time. That is such an important message for the new year. Another unforgettable interview I did this year was with Dr. Phil, and it wasn't just because my internet dropped for seven minutes right before we hit record. What made it so memorable is the powerful advice that he shared during this clip. Well, I said at the beginning of the show when we started four years ago that I felt that the opposite of depression wasn't necessarily happiness, but a sense of purpose. And a lot of people listening don't even feel that they could possibly be needed. What do you think about being in service? Well, I think the best way for people to test this theory is particularly right now when we're in quarantine and depression is at its highest, loneliness is at its highest. Uh, anxiety is at its highest. All of these things are peaked right now in children and adults. The quickest way to fill any void that you feel is to give away that which you need the most. You give it away. If you're sitting at home feeling like, oh my God, I feel so lonely. I feel so alone. You know what? Go somewhere in your apartment building where you know maybe an elderly person is living by themselves or down on the corner, there's somebody down there that's struggling, go knock on their door and say, hey, you don't know me, but I'm so-and-so, and I'm sure you don't want to give me your phone number, but here's mine. If you would like to talk, here's my phone number. I'm on the way to the store. 
can I pick you something up? I'll leave it on your front porch for you. Or if you're out mowing your yard, when you get to the driveway, just keep going and mow the neighbors. If you just give away that which you need the most, I promise you it will fill you up faster than any pill you can take, any therapy you can get, anything you can do. Give away what you need the most. It'll fill you up fast. Oh, Dr. Phil was so great. He put me right at ease when my internet dropped and we just had such a beautiful conversation. So another mind-blowing moment this year was the conversation I had with Dan Butner, who discovered the Blue Zones. It was so fascinating to hear about the lifestyle of these centenarians and I love what he says about how they define their sense of purpose. The idea of don't keep your day job is to quit the day job if the day job is synonymous with something that doesn't light you up. And instead, It's a euphemism for doing the things that do make you feel a sense of purpose, that do make you feel that flow state, right? When you've looked at that, what is purpose? Like, what is it that we could utilize as a compass to even help us? When you said that, it's like, yeah, for some people, it's a hobby, you said, right? For some, but like, what? What does it actually mean? What for these folks in these blue zones How are they defining purpose? What is that on a daily basis for them? So in Blue Zones, a little bit different than America, that purpose also kind of metabolizes the notion of responsibility. Uh, So it's often, you'll see these older people who are passing down a martial art or they're teaching basket weaving. They're so proud of their culture. And part of it is making sure that lives on through younger generations or uh, especially of all blue zones, you know, here in America, we tend to, to uh, celebrate youth and sort of cast aside older people and warehouse them in retirement homes. But in blue zones, the older you get, the more revered you are. And these people's wisdom and resilience and uh, knowledge is harnessed to favor the, so these older people, their purpose often beyond their regular work life uh, is continuing to take their wisdom and put it to work in younger generations. So, for example, in Sardinia, longest lived men in the world, you see the vintners. There, I know at least two vintner that are over 100. They're taking these ancient winemaking techniques and making sure they stay alive. I wrote this book, The Blue Zone Kitchen, 100 Recipes to Live to 100. And I went into the homes of uh, about 80 old women. They are the keepers of the food tradition. Hmm. And it's this diet that explains probably six years of their life expectancy. And in many cases, these recipes are 500 years old. And they take millennia of observed cooking wisdom and they incorporate it in making this peasant food taste delicious. Yeah, you know, so- and then of course, uh, Mihail Chekhsik Mihai, you know, who just died. Yeah. He's the, uh, he was the author of Flow. Mm-hmm. And one litmus test of knowing whether or not you have purpose is if that which you do on a daily basis, you can occasionally get so enraptured with it, so involved with it, that time disappears, two or three hours disappear. And that could be, you know, from my case, it could be writing. Other people, it's art. Other people, it's coding or uh, designing. If you find yourself losing track of time frequently, you've got it. 
you're on the right track. Oh, that episode with Dan was just so good. I highly recommend going back and listening to the whole thing if you haven't heard it. Another unbelievable guest that we had is Dr. Amishi Jha, who is a neuroscientist, professor of psychology, and the author of Peak Mind. She has such an incredible way of explaining how our attention works and how we can regain control of where we place our focus. Let's just talk a little bit about attention because I actually think this is why we're in a lot of pain right now, kind of our current modern moment is one that feels an attentional crisis. And I felt that crisis personally. Like I felt like I couldn't look at my own spouse and like see what was on his face. It was like I was blank or even trying to read research articles, like finding that the meaning just kind of was like evaporating. And probably my wake up moment happened with my son when I was trying to read to him. And this is something I valued so much. It was like a precious time in my day, no matter what my demands, I was going to do this. I wanted to be there. And I realized I wasn't even there then. So, you know, these are real things. I mean, these are this is not life or death in that sense. But it was this notion that life isn't really worth living unless you can really experience it in a way that you want. So, yeah. So, you know, and, and it does come down to attention because in many ways, I see attention as the fuel that we need in order to do very everyday things and very important things. And and we can think of it as sort of, in some ways, a superpower and some ways, the only way that we can even make sense of our world. So just to kind of broadly, do you mind if I talk a little bit about attention? Yeah, I want you to. So let's talk yeah. about the attention, Yeah, how we yeah. can cultivate it and what the heck has happened. It's right. It's yeah. just become elusive, our attention. It has, yet it's the thing that is constantly under so much attack in some sense. Everybody wants it. Every app wants it. 24-7, our colleagues, friends, families want it. It's it's the most sought-after thing. And the thing is that we have to remember that we need to own it in some sense. And that's actually one of the parts of you mentioned my book. Thank you for mentioning it. But yeah, find your focus, own your attention. I mean, that notion of owning our attention is not something most of us think about. It's just something we take for granted. It's something that we've always had. We may feel distracted or pulled by certain things, but this notion of it's ours, it's our intrinsic lifeblood in many ways is not something we, we usually think about. But just to back up, like, why do we even have an attention system? You know, why does it even exist in the brain? Well, let's just put it this way. The way that our attention functions now, given all of the challenges we might be experiencing, given the crisis of attention we might be in, it's actually the success story of human evolution. We are the success story of human evolution. Whatever we have right now that we carry around in our brains was selected for, I mean, refined generation after generation. It didn't happen on by accident, and it's not superfluous. We need it. We need it all the time. So one of the ways to think about why we have it and why we need it is without attention, a brain without attention is essentially either completely blank, dark, doesn't understand the world, can't see the world in, in any from any of its senses, or it's a complete cacophony where so much is happening that it's only experiencing and not filtering. So the most broad way to put a, um, a definition of this term attention is that it was a way for the brain to solve a giant problem it had, which is that there's just far more out there in the world and even within its own internal structures than it could fully process. So attention is a way to 
select a subset of information, filter out everything that's not relevant and highlight what is. And that's a way, if you think about, you know, I use this metaphor a lot because I find it so handy. It's like we're in a darkened room. Just the phenomenology would be like, we're in a darkened room and our attention is like a flashlight. So if you want to find out where the door is or figure out where you are, you survey the kind of external landscape. Beautiful. It's a beautiful analogy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And wherever it is that you point that flashlight, you get more information, richer, crisper, clearer information. The very cool thing about this capacity is, you know, through the course of evolution, we didn't just have it to be able to direct it to the external environment, but we can direct it internally. And this is frankly what makes us so uniquely capable as human beings. If you have an idea that pops into your head, you can shine the flashlight on it and pursue it. It becomes prominent in your thinking and everything else kind of fades away. Or if you have a memory and you want to kind of bring it to mind, you've shined the flashlight on the memory and it has a richness to it that you might not have. So it becomes so useful for not just the external landscape, but the internal landscape. And that's just one way attention works. So just that's the starter for why we have it and and how it works. I'll just say that one of the challenges I think that happens is in addition to this flashlight being able to be directed to the external environment, to the internal environment, I think one of the reasons we have like a real pain point around our attention is because that same flashlight can get yanked around. So if you're in that same darkened room and you hear weird rustling, in that moment, you're going to take that flashlight and point it to wherever you heard the sound coming from. And why did you do that? Again, evolution designed us to quickly pivot to things that are threatening, uncertain, novel. And again, it's not just things in the external environment that have those qualities. If I have a thought that is threatening, fear-inducing, novel, my internal flashlight's going to get yanked to it. So there's always this tension between what I want to devote my focus on and what may pull it away instead. Dr. Amishi is probably actually going to be at my retreat that I'm having in Florida at the end of February. If you want more details, you can DM me on Instagram. Such good stuff. Okay, next we're going to play this clip from Janine Roth, who wrote one of my favorite books of all time, Women, Food, and God. She had such a powerful revelation when she was in a really dark place, and I think it's so important to be able to see the light in those moments. Take a listen. You know, we lost all of our money uh, in 2008. No, I read about that. And one thing I learned about loss. Oh my God. So I've had a lot of big lessons about loss, big lessons. I learned that before we lost all of our money, I had been living in a kind of ambient fear about, well, what if this, and what if that, and what if we do lose our money, and what will we do with this, and are we this, and are we that, and just there was still a fear level about anticipatory loss. Yep. And then, boom, gone. We had a couple thousand dollars left because we were so dumb about the what we did, but that's another story. What I learned... Oh. In that process, and I want to say I would never, ever, ever trade that process for anything else. I would never go back and not have lost our money. Why? Because I saw what that losing our money allowed me to see what could never be lost. Mm -hmm. 
And what could never be lost was in in those days, and I think still is the ability to see, to breathe, to see what I wasn't seeing, like when we were talking about walking to the coffee maker and then walking, see what I wasn't seeing because I was so caught up in my mind about, but what if, and do we have enough money? And what if I have to go to Germany and get my blood cleaned? And, you know, like, (laughs) will I have enough money for that? And these esoteric treatments in case I got sick, did we have enough money for that? And then we had nothing. And I am not kidding you that within a couple of weeks, I was happier than I'd ever been. Why? Because I noticed what I had and not what I might lose sometime. Because for the first time, I started looking at what was here, that my hands, my feet, my eyes, You know, the fact that I was still married, that, you know, that there was a sky, that (laughs) there was a, I had a ceiling over my head. I didn't know how long I was going to have that ceiling over my head, but for now I had sardines, I had chocolate, and I had a roof over my head. Amazing. And when I let, most of the time, most people don't let themselves have what they have because they're afraid of losing it. Yeah. So they live in perpetual scarcity and perpetual poverty. Yes. So one of the practices that I teach and that I use every day is letting myself have what I already have. I highly recommend that you go read Women, Food, and God because it is one of the books that has changed my life more than anything else. So now I want to share something from my conversation with Rabbi David Aaron, who's been on this podcast a few times. He is really one of my greatest teachers in my entire journey. He's a spiritual visionary, a master educator, an author, and one of the most important human beings who's ever crossed my path. I can honestly say that my life has been forever changed because of him. He always has such profound insights. And here he has such a beautiful way of explaining the relationship between love and God and the self. I think most of us, certainly when we were children, were introduced to God as somebody over there in heaven, somewhere up there, looking down at us and, uh, and telling us what to do, requiring obedience, uh, asking for praise. And I think as we get older, a lot of us will find that image of God disturbing. Well, the way the Kabbalah understands God is that God is not an individual being somewhere over there, but rather God is the universal self, that you are a soul and you are a part of what's called the soul of souls. That's what we mean when we say God. And that you and I and every other human being and actually all creatures are part of one shared self. And that's what we mean when we say God. Think of it like electricity. You know, in your room, let's say you have a stove, a fridge, and a light bulb. And they're all connected to the same self, and that would be electricity. When electricity flows through the light bulb, the power of lighting becomes manifest. When it flows through the stove, the power of heating becomes manifest. 
And when electricity flows through the refrigerator, the power of cooling becomes manifest. So you, let's say, your character that you're playing is a light bulb. You are the power of lighting, which is a limited manifestation of the electricity that you share with everybody. And that we're all on the deepest level connected to oneself, one soul. We are like waves in an ocean of consciousness, each and every one of us. And that's why only love is real, because love is the realization that even though I'm not you and you're not me, I might be the power of lighting and you might be the power of cooling and you might be the power of heating, but we're all manifestations, manifestations of this one energy, this one self, which is electricity. And we all know the golden rule, love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, what most people don't know is the continuation of that verse from the Bible is, I am all there ever is, was, and will be. I am reality. There is only one I am. Which means that if there's only one I am, and you're you as an I am, and I as an I am, arrays of, facets of, if God were white light, we would each be a different color, the spectrum of that white light. If God were the sun, we'd be rays of the sun. If God were the ocean, we'd be drops in the ocean. These are metaphors. But what's important is understanding is that when we say God, we mean the universal soul, the one I am that we all share. And you become part of this one self, this one soul. And that is the search for God. The search for God is the search for love. Because love is a realization that on the deepest level, we are one. So love your neighbor as yourself is qualified when you realize that the higher self, the ultimate self, is the one self. And whether you want to call the one self God, it doesn't matter what word you use. What matters is what deed you do to realize and live this truth of that shared self that we're all part of. All right. So now I'm going to share a piece that actually was something that I shared when I was talking with my friend Susie Moore on a bonus workshop that we did. And this really plays into the topic of how we can really move into the energy beyond that place where we get consumed by negativity. I hope that you can take this reminder with you into the new year. You and your connection to your ultimate truth, to expansion, to yourself, to the next thing you need to know, it exists, but it's not in your awareness. The reason it's on your awareness is because when you're pulled into the worry and you're in your brain, you're in here, you're so in matter, you're so in the 3D, you're so in the predictable, you're so in the fear, you can't grab the awareness of the higher, elevated, better thing that's going to actually give you the next step into the future you really want to create. So in order to grab that awareness, you've got to get out of the fight or flight. You've got to get into something bigger. So every one of my friends, name a friend of mine, name anyone you look up to, Michael Jordan, Jerry Seinfeld, they're meditating every single day. There's a reason for it. 
There's a reason for it because the brain has no answers for you. It's in the feeling. It's in the awareness. It's in plugging into something that's beyond this limited fear body when we've just that we've practiced it we've rehearsed it we've mentally rehearsed this shame this guilt this doubt so many times it just shows up for its work every day i'm here i'm back you practice me how about mentally rehearsing the future you want mentally rehearsing the expansion the feelings you want to feel looking at it that is why that is why the bulls and the lakers have the exact same the exact same place in the NBA. They had the same freaking coach. His name is Phil Jackson. He's the only coach in the NBA that said, we're going to meditate a third of the time. We're going to meditate. We're going to sit on our ass instead of making free throws. He goes, that's correct. You're going to feel the feeling of winning this national championship. You're going to freaking feel the feeling of it. And that feeling is so much more powerful than you dribbling more. Stop dribbling. Feel the feeling. Step into that expansion. You are connected to the creator of this freaking universe. You just don't tap into it. You have access to it. You don't allow it. So that's what you do. That's what you do. And you have to do it. You have to do it. Like if we're too busy to find time to step out of this low vibe, constant rehearsing of the brain and the we just, we're killing ourselves. I just had Dan Butner on the podcast. He's responsible for finding the blue zones, Okinawa, Loma Linda. This is insane. This is crazy. I said to him with tears, stroke, flame. I go, the fact that you've uncovered this and written five New York Times bestsellers, putting this in the world and people heard it and they don't do it. What is wrong with us? Talk about resistance. There are five places in the world where the largest population of people who are in their hundreds are walking around, riding bicycles, healthy, happy. They all meditate. The brain creates cortisol. Every single disease in the body comes from inflammation. Cortisol makes the inflammation. When we drop it, our body knows how to access the real hormones we need, oxytocin, right? Then we get into the awareness. That's how I become friends with Susie. That's how I start a good podcast. That's how I write the book. It's not from all the stuff that I'm going to sit here, try to figure out. I got to get in the awareness of it. And that leads to the next awareness and the next awareness. And next thing you know, you're tuned to a different radio station and everybody who's in that radio station bumps right into you. So those were definitely some of the most epic moments of the show. I hope that you enjoyed it as much as I did. Here are the takeaways. Number one, commit to becoming a better receiver than you were yesterday. The subject of receiving is vast and unlimitless. We're in an era of receiving. Number two, the quickest way to fill any void is to give away that which you need the most. Number three, only love is real. Love is the realization that we are one. Number four, stop worrying about what you might lose. Let yourself have what you have. Number five, write the story of your life, even if it's just for you. You won't believe how interesting you are. Number six, purpose is something you do that makes you so enraptured, time disappears. If you lose track of time, you got it. You're on the right track. Number seven, no matter who you're talking to, love everyone unconditionally. Number eight, attention is the fuel we need in order to do very everyday things and important things. It's a superpower. And number nine, mentally rehearse the future you desire. Feel the feeling. Step into the expansion. You are connected to the creator of this universe. Well, that's a wrap on 2021. I can't tell you just how grateful I am that you're here, that you listen, and that I get to do this show. 
We're coming up on our five-year anniversary next week. I still cannot believe how this podcast has grown in just five years. It would not have been possible without you. Since the new year is usually about making changes, I want to remind you that we are changing the name of the podcast. But if anything else is going to change, it's only that we're just going to keep increasing God willing, the potency of the show, just expanding the conversations, just really tapping into more of the beauty, the love, the expansion that we can share with one another. So you won't have to subscribe to anything new. We're just changing the name. It's going to show up in your usual podcast app, but just with a different name and a different logo. So starting next week, the show will officially be called The Kathy Heller Show. I've been going back and forth on this idea for a while, but I think that we've reached the point where the show is it's just so much more about business and work. And it doesn't mean that we're going to stop talking about that because finding your sense of purpose and getting a chance to be paid to do what you love is really such an incredible gift. But I want to also talk about stepping into our highest self and our most expansive version of ourself and creating the most abundant life that you're meant to have. So we'll be back next week as the Kathy Heller Show. And because next week is also our five-year anniversary, we're going to be doing some huge giveaways. So go onto my Instagram at kathy.heller so that you won't miss out on the giveaways. I'm going to leave you with a song of mine, Happy New Year, and I'll talk to you on Monday in 2022. But now